All right. So chapter 17, if this work is the work of God, then he is surely able and willing to provide for it. And he talks about the difference between thinking there is a need, but a real need. What is the difference in your minds between those two things? Bob? I think I need to make sure that my shoes and my mat, my belt match my suit and my tie. But really, they don't. Okay. So clothes that match, all right. What else? What are, what are real needs? The list is fairly small, but what are real needs? Okay, food. Food, shelter, okay. <clears throat> and if we want to be really specific, can we get by without food and shelter? No. What's that? I mean, not indefinitely, but like, yeah. like, for example, Paul said there's times where he didn't have a place to live and he didn't have food and I've been hungry and I've been without. So our, our most basic need is God. Everything else, to a certain extent, is either we need it sooner or later or we don't need it at all, right? So, you know, people will argue how long you can go without water, without food, all those sorts of things. Um, usually a lot longer than we think we can, right? But um, I was, uh, during the teacher in service, they read the passage about Jesus' temptations. And the fact that he was in the wilderness for 40 days without food is remarkable to me because, you know, four hours seems like a long time sometimes. So, um, so this affects our view of God's provision how? Understanding needs versus wants. Okay. So more likely to see him answer if we're relying on him for actual needs. Okay. What else? How is our view of God's provision changed by understanding needs versus wants? Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Okay. It frees us up to be able to serve God, right? To <clears throat> realize that what He gives us is not ultimately ours. Um, it's not my sofa, it's not my dinner table, it's not my house, it's not my car. It's something that's God's loaned to me for a while. So that both argues against buying an $80,000 truck and against the attitude that says um, no one can ever touch my stuff because it's mine. Now, should we take care of things? Yes. 
uh, different people have different ideas of what that looks like. If you consistently loan your tools to somebody who gives them back to you rusty and broken, then you might be not super inclined to keep doing that. Um, but at the same time, there should be a degree to which we're willing for that to happen if it's a necessity to help a fellow brother or sister in Christ out, particularly. Um, Bob? I've been more and more convicted about just material things in general and realizing it's harder to call them blessings. Okay. Yeah, not everyone is distracted by having things, but most of us spend a lot of time cleaning them, organizing them, putting them in various places, back and forth, storing them, paying to store them if we have too many. Like, at some point it gets a bit silly to say, I have so many things that I have to store them somewhere else. But the reason I'm storing them somewhere else is because I need room in my house, but I don't actually need all these other things, but I'm not willing to let go of them. Or... Um, just the whole reality of, you could take this too far, but uh, minimalism becomes like a religion for some people. But part of why I think it's attractive to us in America sometimes is this reality that we have so much stuff that has become a burden. So, um, you know, for me, I realized even though I like bikes, even though I had not a whole lot of money tied up in them. I didn't need more than a couple. I don't technically need any, but I definitely didn't need five, right? So I got rid of some of the extra ones, even though I was saying, oh, well, here's this fun project I'm going to do down the road, or, you know, just those sorts of things, because it becomes a burden to move things around, to say, all right, I could work on this project, but here's this other thing I should be doing instead. And I don't know what that is for you. For some people, it's hobbies. For other people, it's my grandmother had a collection of decorative like little spoons, like baby spoons, and it, it was a small collection. It hung on a little display on her wall. I don't think it got out of hand, but for some people, they have entire rooms devoted to things like that. Um, so this becomes a vicious cycle as well when we say, here's all the things I need. I need lots of money so that I can pay for constant vacations and lots of stuff and this, that, and the other thing. And then that need to work all the time means we don't have relationships with people that God actually wants us to have. And so all these things are just some of the negatives of materialism in our culture. Now, you're not more holy if you have two things instead of 50. But if you have 50 things and you spend all your time on them, there is a real possibility that it is interfering with your holiness. And so it's something to think about. He says next that the Lord should use for so glorious a service one as unfaithful and unworthy as I am can only be ascribed to the riches of his grace. How does humility factor into the grace to exercise faith like Mueller about having daily needs provided? How is humility a big part of that? Or to put it another way, why would someone who is proud be unable to see God answer prayer the way that Mueller did? Evan? Okay, unwilling to share the credit for what happens, Ben? Yeah, I was going to say that they would think that they fixed the problem. <coughs> 
Yeah. Pride says, I can do it, and I have done it, and everyone should notice, right? And humility says, I can't, so I'm depending on God. And uh, so God, I think, is more likely to honor that sort of uh, attitude in the answering of prayers. What else? Anything else on this point? I think the willingness, too. Not only does pride say, I can, it says, I must. Okay. Yeah, pride says, I must do it, I have to fix it. Okay. Good. Yes, Norma. Sometimes we put down God's rules. It means we're not trusting God. Yeah. Pride and trusting in God are incompatible, right? Okay. Good. Sandra. Okay. Yeah, so gratefulness, thankfulness follows humility. So... If God's goal in answering prayers in extravagant ways is to bring glory to himself and you both take credit for it and don't thank him afterward, he's not particularly inclined to honor that, right? Good. The, he gives this account of a lady who has, uh, I think it was a thousand pounds, 500, whatever it was. She believed God put this sum into her hands without her seeking and she thought it was a provision which the Lord had made for her. She asked for me to pray how she should use it. After she left, I asked the Lord to cause her to realize true riches and inheritance in the Lord Jesus and the reality of her heavenly calling. I asked she would cheerfully lay down this 500 pounds at his feet. Was it right for Mueller to pray this way, especially considering she ended up donating the money to the orphanage? I mean, at one glance, it seems a little bit self-serving, but was it wrong for him to pray that she would be willing to give up the money for God's service? No. Did he necessarily know that she was going to give it to the orphanage? No. So, I mean, if he had said, I will pray, if he said to her, I will pray that God will make you willing to give this up to the orphanage, that's a different scenario than saying, I will pray with you that you'll have wisdom how to use it. Because he prays for like three weeks... Um, to, without telling her about that she would consider giving some of it to the orphanage. Why does he wait to make her commit to the gift once she expresses her willingness to give it up? Sandra? Okay, like not a spur of the moment kind of thing. Okay. Good. What else? Bob? I think to a certain extent for her conscience sake because I mean, we all have buyer's remorse. Where yeah. We make a decision, we do something, and then we question it. If there's a few weeks to think about it even more, yeah. there's likely not going to be any remorse. Okay. Or at least less, right? <laughs> remorse about having made the gift. Um, there's, there's, uh, there's this element of counting the cost that he would sometimes encourage people to do, which kind of ties in with what Bob was saying about buyer's remorse or regret over decisions that we've made. Um, there's a degree... Go ahead, Evan. Yeah. He also wanted to be a cheerful yeah, to be a cheerful giver, right attitude and, and uh, approach to it. Okay. Um, 
Why did God make Mueller wait four months to actually receive the gift? And how does that fit with his prayer and like all those sorts of ideas? So he prays for God for her to be willing to give it. She says, I'm going to give it, but it's going to take several months before it's available. He ends up waiting almost four months before he actually receives anything. What does that do for him? What does that do for her? What does that do for what God's accomplishing in both of them? Jonathan? It makes him trust in God. Yeah, just keep trusting God because it's not like the bills stop for those four months while he's waiting. Okay. Okay, yeah, her being willing to let go of things. Evan? Okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so there's this commitment that he made before God not to take things on credit. And so if you know you're going to be able to pay it off with a couple of months, why not, right? But he stuck with that. What about her attitude that it was a provision that the Lord had made for her without her seeking? That's kind of a unique attitude in our society like if you I don't know if you got $50,000 unexpectedly I don't think for most of us I mean hopefully but I don't think for most of us our first thought is I didn't want this I didn't deserve it how can I give it away right that's not typically our first thought it's I didn't expect this but man here's all the stuff I can buy with it right now I'm not saying if something like that happened, there was another example earlier in the book where the lady paid off some debts, helped out family members and all that before she gave to the orphanage or whatever the work was. I'm not saying that approach is wrong either. I'm just saying the attitude that says, this is not mine, how has God provided it for me to minister to other people, as opposed to, I deserve this even though I didn't expect it, how can I spend it to make me happy? Those are just two different attitudes. Uh, next little part here. Consider, considering Mueller's compelling reasons for establishing a fourth orphan house, why did he wait four or three weeks before approaching the people who had said they'd be willing to rent their house for the work? So, for example, I guess what I'm trying to say is if you know somebody's willing to help you with it and you have really good reasons for doing it, why would you wait long enough that they might have changed their minds or no longer be willing to do it? Uh, able to do it. Bob? Well, it, it's, it's his consistent purpose in all of this. Okay. He wanted to make sure that it wasn't, and he goes through all the reasons of why he believes it's not his desire, that it's God's desire, but he wants to stay true to that in everything that he does. He doesn't want to be reproachable in any decision that he makes, even if yeah, page 166. As conclusive as these points were, they did not convince me I should go forward in this service if the Spirit's leading did not accompany them. Now, there's a degree to which this reliance on the Spirit's leading is viewed as pietistic and somehow antagonistic toward upholding the value of God's Word. 
And I guess here's the thing that I would say in answering that. Particular uh, segments is not the best word, but I can't think of another one. Of Christianity have particular strengths and weaknesses. The strength of someone like Mueller and the strength of many of the more pietistic, if we will, streams of Christianity is that they pray a whole lot more than people who say, well, the Bible has all the answers and the principles, so I just lay them all up in a neat row, and then I say, God, is this good? And we pray for a day, and we're like, yeah, it's good, and we do it, right? Now, um, you say nobody acts that way. I think there's a lot of people who act that way, right? Because an emphasis on logic and truth statements, while important to combat complete nonsense, to the extent that it excludes the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is a dangerous thing. As much as someone who says, the Spirit led me without considering the cold hard facts, is also a dangerous position to be in. And so what I'm trying to say is, if our particular stream of Christianity has been <coughs> more emphasizing principles and truth and what does the Bible say, that's a good thing to the extent that it doesn't exclude what the Holy Spirit is doing. Bob? Do you think, in that regard, because he was in a public spotlight, he was under a microscope for every little thing that he does, finding that balance where maybe because of that spotlight, because of the journal, because of all these things, he took extra long, whereas maybe an individual in their life maybe wouldn't have taken as long to do it, but should still take that consideration. Yeah. I think if we look at the nature of the things that he's doing, um, <coughs> taking on the responsibility to do a big work like another orphan house is of a different magnitude than saying, should I buy this outfit kind of thing, right? So there's definitely decisions that don't require days and days of prayer about them because obviously if it's things that have to happen in a given day and you say, I'm going to pray about it and I'm going to wait a week, I mean, then you've never gotten dressed for that day that you need to go out and do stuff, right? But going back to the needs versus wants, if it's something that's a want, I think we should take longer to think about it because <coughs> we don't actually need it. And if it's something that's really significant like this, I think we should take longer. I think just generally we should be in the habit of taking a little bit longer to pray about things is, is the main point that I'm making. So yeah, I think there's a degree to which his awareness of the fact that people are watching him potentially influenced it. But I also think there's a degree to which he was convinced this was the right thing to do whether anybody was watching or not. Sandra. It sounds similar. Can you explain a little more what you feel like the difference is?
So you're saying in, in the one scenario someone prays at the beginning of the three weeks and then waits, and the other scenario they pray every day during the three weeks? I'm just trying to, I'm, I'm trying to make sure I'm following. You pray for a few days and then, then you get a confidence to believe it's going to happen, so then you stop versus praying for the whole three weeks. Hmm. Yeah. But it seems like all the other things come after the Lord is the meat. For Mueller? For <coughs> hmm. I'm not trying to be dense. I'm still trying to follow what you're asking. Um, I don't know if this illustration will help. If your kids want to get ice cream, and they ask you, and we say, you say, yeah, we're going to go do that in three days. Little kids will continue to ask you about it until the moment that it happens. Adults get annoyed with that, and we're like, quit asking. I think God's attitude is more toward us coming to him as little children than as adults who say, I've asked once, so that should be good enough. Um, and there's some different things that Jesus says that I think support that idea, but we could discuss it further. So I guess what I'm saying is I think we would do better to continue to pray until God answers the prayer as opposed to just praying until we feel like he's going to. I don't know if that's getting at what you were asking. No? Say it again. I'm just I'm trying to follow what you're saying. Okay, Norma and then Bob. <coughs> okay, Bob? So I don't know if this is, which I think this is what she's getting at. Is continued prayer about the same thing until God answers a sign of unbelief? No. Because if, for example, if I say, if I'm praying for the salvation of, of somebody, I guess that's a little bit different, um, but praying for a specific need, I think there's a, a, a part of us that says, I know God heard me, mm -hmm. and so... I believe he's going to answer. I don't need to keep asking. I'm going to trust that he's going to answer. And not to the exclusion of prayer, <coughs> but to the exclusion of prayer about that specific thing. And I think about the, the woman bugging, for lack of a better word, the, to get her justice. And she was 
she knew he heard her, but she kept asking. So I guess that's where I'm wondering if how our approach should be. Yeah. <coughs> but I'm trying to say repeated prayer is not a sign of unbelief. Because Luke 18.1 says he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart. And he's saying, if the unjust judge listened to the woman because of her persistence, how much more will God, who is not unjust, do so? Huh? Just to would you say that there is, there can be a, a difference in how that is approached? For example, saying, Lord, please provide this thing. The next day it hasn't happened. Lord, please provide this thing. And continuing that, that method of just consistency versus by day three, Lord, why haven't you provided this yet? Yeah, I, I could see a difference between those two things. And I don't know if that's some of what you're getting at, but... Yeah. Okay. Because the Lord gave me COVID. And there came a time when I thought it would take me home, and it didn't. And then there came a time shortly after that that the Lord, you know, laid on my heart that he was going to move. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a complicated relationship between all those things. There are moments for expressing exasperation to God. We see that in the Psalms. There are moments for quiet trust and repeated daily asking for the same thing for years on end. I think it takes a degree of wisdom to know which moment it is. So it's, yeah. The important thing is that we are expressing trust in God going to Him to resolve these things for us rather than in pride scheming and saying I can fix all of these things on my own and um, yeah I mean I think this is going to look different at different points in our lives in different situations for different people but the same basic principles I think hold true um The irony about the property is that the people, by the time he went and asked them, they're like, yeah, we're not planning to rent it anymore. And then he had to wait another however many weeks for them to say, well, we do it. So there's a degree to which we might say, well, if he had just said yes when they asked him in the first place, then he wouldn't have to wait a few more weeks. But what effect does waiting six weeks have on his dependence on God, on their willingness to give to God's work, if it's not an immediate thing, it's developing things in both their hearts that would not have happened had he said yes immediately. Now, sometimes there's moments to say yes right away and sometimes there's not. I think this was one that was not. And God can work through both of them whether we make the right decision or we don't. Well, I think that's the key to his life, to prayer in general. The purpose is not to get the answer to the prayer. That's, that's not 
<coughs> does God receive glory in that? Absolutely. When we praise him, right? Mm-hmm. But it's the, it's the development of that trust, of that reliance, and that's developed while we're waiting, not when we get the answer. Yeah. So the answer is a reprieve to a certain extent, but the growth comes through the waiting. And that is what we, I think, are supposed to learn to treasure, which I think he did, is treasure that waiting, knowing that we can trust, knowing that he is going to provide our needs when we need it. That is the payoff. Yeah. This reminds me of a conversation I was having yesterday, and the question was asked, if so much of our Christian growth comes through struggle, what does heaven look like for us when there is no struggle anymore? And the answer that I tried to give that I think is biblical is the reason for the struggle is because we don't get it the first time or the second time or the fourth time or however many times. In a moment when our responses are perfected, God can say a truth to us and we can grasp it and live it out immediately in the context of being in God's presence and being perfected in a way that life on earth can't accomplish without these ongoing trials and difficulties and waiting and all that kind of thing. But there's probably more to it than that, so just something else to think about more. In the next chapter, Mueller asked, or I guess in the same chapter, he asked different things about jobs. Am I in a calling in which I can abide with God? Why do I carry on this business or why am I engaged in this trade or profession? How are these helpful questions to evaluate the kind of careers that we have or the work that we do? Let's say you're an undercover police officer and your daily experience is to lie all of the time. Is that something in which a Christian can theoretically be engaged for his or her whole life and be in a good spot spiritually? I mean, I know there's people out there who would say yes, but it's hard for me to see it. Um, <clears throat> let's say that you are working at a... Um, a uh, I don't know, one of these kind of bars where women don't wear much clothing. You're like, well, I'm going there so I can witness to people. Um, is it theoretically possible? Yes. Is it incredibly likely that that's all that's ever going to come of that? Probably not. Um, but then it becomes a little bit more difficult, right? Um, People who are doctors and nurses who are never home with their families because of their work. Um, soldiers who are gone for potentially years at a time and similarly absent from their families. Can a Christian uphold responsibilities before God and do one of those kind of professions? Some of it comes down to the way that you do your job. You're a carpenter, but you cut corners and you lose low-quality materials because you want to save money on your jobs. You're a, <clears throat> I don't know, 
a businessman, but you don't disclose everything to someone who's making some sort of decision, and they end up buying a business and then finding out afterwards that it was on the verge of collapsing. Like, some of it's the way that you do your business, right? It's not just the sort of job that you have. Why is it helpful to ask, is this a business that I could sort of not be ashamed of before God if he says, why did you do this business all your life? Is that a good question to ask? I think it probably is. What about that second question? Why do I do it? Because is it a legitimate thing is one question, but to say why do I do it is another one. He says in most instances the answer would be to support myself and my family. But he says to be engaged in a business merely to obtain the necessities of life for ourselves and our family is not scriptural. Which is kind of fundamentally opposed to a lot of the things that we hear about the idea of work or Christian vocation, right? They would say that is the primary reason for working. And he's saying it's not. He says we should work because it's God's will concerning us. We should not work primarily to get what we need for daily life. What do you guys think about that idea? He gives the example of Ephesians 4.28, labor, working with his hands, the thing that was good, so he may have to give to the one that needs. Okay. I think that's definitely part of what he's getting at. It's not just about how much money you can make in it. Good, Sandra? Um, I think it's part of the character of the Okay. Yeah, let me just give you an illustration of that. I have some cousins who are involved in a Christian school in Indiana that I'm sure could make a lot more money if they went and taught like at a public school in Indianapolis um, instead of in a smaller Christian school. But they're having a huge opportunity to minister to various kids. So from that perspective, it's not just about the money, and our concept of calling has to be even more firm to say yes to something that provides less or seems to give less opportunities. Bob? Yeah, I mean, sounds like a broken record, but again, I think it, where we have so much, mm -hmm. we are so focused on, well, if we get more money, then it must be better, and we don't look at all of those other aspects. Whereas in other countries where they have very little, they have a better understanding of, okay, I know that I have needs, but how can I serve and still accomplish those needs, not looking for the best and the greatest and everything? Just our, our perspectives almost have to be retrained, and I think this is foreign to our thinking Yeah. because of where we live. Yeah, the more that you have, I think the more the temptation to say, I have to hold on to it, the less that you have, the more aware you are that you often are in need yourself and you're more willing to meet the needs of others. 
Not always, but I think that often is the case. Um, and just to be clear, I'm not diminishing the ministry of Christian school teachers or anybody else. I'm not saying that it's a bad thing. I'm just saying there are moments at which doing that sort of ministry doesn't make sense from a financial perspective or from a career perspective or whatever else. Um, he says something to explain this a little bit further. The Lord generally meets our needs through our jobs, but that is not the reason why we should work. If providing the necessities of life depended on our ability to work, we could never have freedom from anxiety. We would always have to say, what will I do when I'm too old to work or if I'm sick? But if we are engaged in our earthly calling because it is the will of the Lord for us, He is sure to provide for us because we labor in obedience to Him. So he says, he's basically saying, instead of thinking about it as, I work to provide for my needs, he's saying, I work because work is honorable in God's sight. And yes, it does provide for my needs, but if I can no longer work, I can meet them some other way. I think it's good things to, to think about. In the next chapter, he had needs for the property and a large amount of funds to build an orphan house. Why is it striking that he encountered Ezra's account of Cyrus building the temple and the people giving generously? How can we be similarly convicted by the Bible? My point is not so much his specific example, but the way in which God encouraged him using that account from the Old Testament. How can we be similarly encouraged by examples from the Bible in situations in which we find ourselves? Or convicted. Encouraged or convicted. Do you have any examples of what that looks like in your life? John? Yeah. I can't answer that for you, but I think I know, and I'm that, not asking no, you to. No, I'm I understand. Saying, I'm, I'm constantly thinking about that. Yeah. I do think that there are things that we can do to help people meet their temporal needs that provide those opportunities to point them to eternal realities that are not in and of themselves sinful, even if the people who are doing the business uh, or, or coming to the business have the wrong goals, like 
I don't know, let's say that you were a caterer and you provided food for banquets and events and whatever, the fact that people might be extravagant or wasteful in the way that they do one of those events doesn't preclude you from doing that job of providing food. It just means maybe you have an opportunity to say, even at the expense of your business, hey, you know, you don't have to spend $10,000 on this. You could spend five and still have a opportunity to, you know, celebrate whatever it is. You know, I, I don't know, just a lot of directions that could go. Um, just a personal example for me of what I'm trying to illustrate from this question. I've been struck looking at the example of the Israelites in the book of Isaiah. And I feel like I've seen parallels to my life as I've studied through it, both in moments where I have similarly not turned away from temptation just the way that they didn't turn away from temptation, or the way that I've seen God's grace and kindness even at moments when I didn't deserve it, which is basically all of them, um, we tend to look down on the Israelites. We tend to, I think Bob was saying maybe this a little bit, exalt principles over examples, but both have tremendous value as we read through the Bible. Um, and so instead of making those things fight against each other, well, God says, you know, 1 Thessalonians 3, abstain from immorality, and that's a principle, so we really have to follow that. But here's an example where the Israelites didn't do that. And so, yeah, it's good as an illustration, but that's about it. Both have important weight and value in what God's trying to teach us, is what I'm trying to say. And so the fact that he reads this account of God's provision for the rebuilding of the temple and sees in it a reminder of God's faithfulness to accomplish great things for his people, we can learn as much, if not more sometimes, from the examples of God's work throughout the Bible as we do from just the simple statements and principles and commands. That's, that's what I'm trying to get at. Last question. How patient would you be to wait, and this, we'll just leave this as a rhetorical question because of sake of time. How patient would you be to wait 400 days and more from the time you began praying for a significant answer to prayer to see God work all of it out? What would that accomplish for your faith and for God's name? This was with regard to the building the orphan house, not on Wilson Street, the four little houses, but the big one that he built later. And uh, we'll continue to read more of that in coming chapters. Um, Robert, will you close us in prayer, please?